Hey, thanks for joining us on the C3 Oxford Falls podcast. If you'd like more information on C3 Church, please visit myc3church.net. We hope you enjoy this message. This morning, toward our theme of one another, I'd like to begin with a story about a friend. She was a compassionate and truly beautiful soul, and her children reflected her well. In fact, her youngest son was the first true friend outside of our family that my eldest son ever had. We have three children through the miracle of adoption, and our eldest is on the autistic spectrum. And so if you have a special needs child in your life, you know that for them to find a true friend is like finding gold. So we spent as much time with them as we could, and over the years, I began to notice a pattern. I noticed that they loved to get together, but always somewhere else beside their home. We would meet at the zoo, or we would meet at the park, or they would come to our house. But even when I went to pick them up, everybody would already be there outside waiting for me. I had never stepped foot inside their home until one day we had to, or more specifically, one of my children had to. And so I said, I am so sorry to intrude. Could we please borrow your restroom? And they opened their door, and for the first time, I walked in. I'm not much for TV, but my friends tell me that there's this show in the States about dear souls that love to collect things, that love to keep things, that everything they've ever had, they still have. And it was hard for me to imagine, because I lean a little minimalistic, But as I walked inside their home, I suddenly had a vivid picture. There was perhaps a two-foot path from the door through the living room into the bathroom and back. And outside of that path, wall to wall, sometimes floor to ceiling, were boxes and books and things. Now, we need to be very, very careful assuming anything about other people's backstory, don't we? Who knows how all of that came into her home? Perhaps she inherited it. I did know that she had been in a tremendous medical crisis, and she did not have the strength at all to go through all of those pieces and all of those piles. But it did cause me to think a bit about clutter, about how clutter can actually hinder hospitality how clutter can affect even a generous soul's freedom to welcome others into their homes, and how clutter affects the next generation. My beautiful friend did pass away, and she is dancing with Jesus. And after she passed, her incredible children, they went through every piece and every box and everything and every book with the same enormous love that their mother had sown into their lives. Clutter in our homes. Today my focus is clutter in our hearts. Heart clutter as well can hinder hospitality. Heart clutter as well can limit our freedom to welcome others into our homes. Heart clutter as well affects the next generation. And heart clutter seems to grow just like any other kind of clutter, doesn't it? A little bit here, a little bit there, and somehow the papers turn into piles that we have to weave around. 
until the piles themselves become obstacles that simply stop us. And that's when we first notice it, isn't it? On its own, clutter collects rather quietly until it hits that tipping point and its cumulative weight starts to weigh us down, starts to slow us down emotionally, spiritually, relationally, even physically. We live in such a cluttered day, don't we? I think that perhaps that's one of the reasons that the simplicity movement has gained such traction in recent decades. From the seemingly endless editions of the Keep It Simple series to Ikea and organizational coaches, even the tiny house trend, we've got too much stuff. We're doing too much stuff. And we feel weighed down by it all. And it would seem that the obvious antidote to all of this clutter would be developing the discipline of decrease, but decrease isn't among our favorite words, is it? We associate decrease with rather unpleasant concepts like failure and punishment and weakness, because after all, decrease is an antonym of increase, and we're rather attached to our increase, (laughs) always wanting to increase, never decrease, always wanting to add, never subtract. The problem is, though, that continuous increase is exhausting. Continuous increase, it's unsustainable. And that's because continuous increase is unnatural. When we look at the examples God has set in nature, Those cycles celebrate increase and decrease and the work between those two equally. And in addition to nature, we see God inviting us to reframe decrease through his scriptures from Genesis establishment of a Sabbath for rest to Ecclesiastes theology of a time for everything under the sun to the cross, which is the ultimate embodiment of the power of decrease God invites us to consider the possibility that decrease can be sacred. He invites us to consider that thinning our heart clutter can actually thicken our communion with him. He invites us to befriend less and loss, not for the sake of less and loss, but as part of our fellowship with him. So this morning, I invite you to consider with me wisdom from an ancient mentor, reframing for us decrease. Consider the wise words of John the Baptist, familiar words. In John 3, verse 30, John says, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase. And I, I must decrease. Now we know a good bit about John the Baptist, don't we? We know that John was Jesus's relative, born some six months before him. We know that John was the miracle child of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both described as upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. We know from Luke 1 verse 80 that John became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. And we also know that there is complete consensus throughout the Gospels, inclusive of Jesus' affirmation and John the Baptist's self-identification, associating John as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. John was a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John was a prophet. 
And John was a leader. And John was the prophetic leader of a community. He was the leader of a tribe that he worked with and dreamed with and served with. He must increase. I must decrease. We often think about this sentence as a very concise definition of humility, which is true. And there's more because John didn't offer this sentence as some sort of random poetic tweetable. John offered the sentence within a context. So let's consider that context together. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter three. And if not, those verses will be on the screen. And we are gonna begin in verse 22. John three, starting in verse 22. After this, and this is Jesus's talk with Nicodemus at night. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. And now John was also baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and the people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. John spoke this sentence in a specific context to a specific group, to his disciples. Now earlier, John had pointed his disciples to Jesus and he had said, look, there's the lamb. And some of John's disciples, like Andrew, took his cue and followed Jesus. So this group of disciples are those who, for whatever reason, remained with John. He spoke it to a specific group about a specific concern they were having. And when I read through this passage, sometimes it seems as though there's a bit of the story missing because it starts off with an argument about ceremonial washing. And in context, that makes a lot of sense. But then all of a sudden, they're coming to John with a frustration about Jesus. And it seems as though the bridge is out until we remember how often it is in our own lives that an argument about something new brings to the surface frustration about something old. John's disciples had been frustrated about something for a while. They were frustrated about Jesus they were frustrated about Jesus baptizing, but more so what they brought to John's attention wasn't the fact that Jesus was baptizing. What they brought to his attention was the fact that Jesus was being successful baptizing. What bothered them was Jesus's success. Hey master, you know that guy you talked about? You even pointed us to him. You did that big shout out for him. Well, did you know he's doing the exact same thing that we do? And everybody is going to him. They were bothered by Jesus's success. And so as a student, I asked myself, I wonder why? I wonder what it is that bothered them. And perhaps we can gain some insight by asking ourselves, why? What is it that bothers us? What is it that frustrates us when someone perhaps we've even helped out seems to be surpassing us? You know that guy, he was in the office, he was there for several years, sharp, really learned it quick, 
and he disappeared. Not sure where he went, but he just resurfaced. Do you know he started his own company? Basically just lifted all of our practices, all of our procedures, slapped a new name on his building. He's got like 50,000 followers, and I want to know what's up with that. Or you remember that woman, and you and her, you guys had about the same credentials, and you wouldn't have ever said it out loud because that would have been rude, but you knew you had a little more natural talent. But she got the job. She got the invite. She got the offer. Now, this isn't always the way it is, right? So often, we can gladly, freely, with our whole hearts, celebrate others' successes. We're truly, genuinely happy for them. But then there are those times when somebody's success just it bothers us, it frustrates us, because somehow it's crossed a line and has offended our sense of justice. So what is that thing? What's at the root of that feeling we have when we have shown others the way to someone we believed in and now they've just taken off and gone so far beyond us? Well, we're separated from John's disciples by many centuries and certainly by a big culture gap. But I think we've lived long enough to take a couple of educated guesses. Perhaps at the root of what bothered them was jealousy. People are always flocking to the newest startup. You know what? If we could convince John the Baptist to get rid of that camel's hair and update his image, I bet you we could get some fresh PR around this place. Or maybe it was territorialism. Hello, we were here first. What right does Jesus have to infringe on our territory and copycat our unique thing? Maybe it was entitlement. Those crowds are ours. We began the baptismal work at the Jordan. We did all the hard work. Jesus just jumps in, reaps the reward, and the people follow him. Where is the loyalty? Where's the love? I am not feeling the love. Maybe it was fear. There are thousands of things Jesus could do. Why pick this one? Can we get really practical? This is our livelihood. And if everybody goes to be baptized by him, what's going to become of us? Or maybe it was offense. How dare Jesus use John like a stepping stone to start his own thing? Who does he think he is? I thought they were friends. Whatever the actual motivations of John's disciples, I think that we can all agree. John's disciples were having a really, really hard time seeing Jesus through all of that heart clutter. Without question, heart clutter hinders hospitality. Without question, heart clutter limits our freedom to welcome others into our home. Without question, heart clutter affects the next generation because heart clutter blocks our view of Jesus. There's a concept I've been thinking about for a few years now, and I'd like to try to unpack it for us. I will ask for your patience because I may be a little clumsy in the offering. We'll take a bit of time to try to wrap our minds around it, and then we're going to circle back to John and his disciples. I wonder if perhaps what might be at the root of our frustration with other people's successes is something I'm going to call the idol of uniqueness. The idol 
of uniqueness. May I suggest to you that your core calling is not unique? Which is a very different thing than saying you aren't unique or I'm not unique. Of course you're unique. Your existence shouts your uniqueness. I'll say more about that in just a minute. But I suggest to you that your core calling is not unique. That your core calling is gloriously common. Because Jesus says the same thing to each and every one of us when he calls us. Jesus says the same thing to each one of us. He looks at us and he says, follow me. To every soul, in every century, in every nation, he says, follow me. It's clear, it's concise, and it's magnificent enough to fill the entirety of our lives. In the scripture, Jesus says, follow me directly to Simon Peter and Andrew, a nameless disciple with a father to bury, Matthew the tax collector, a young man of means, and Philip. He says it indirectly to James and John and another guy who said he needed to go home and pack up some things first. He simply says to each and every one of us, follow me, which makes our core calling gloriously common. Now, before the strategic thinkers in the room start breaking out in hives, let me confirm. Yes, you're unique. By divine design, there is only one you. If we were to hire a spiritual investigator to dust you, what would be revealed is a custom set of our creator's fingerprints. There is only one you here and in all of history by divine design. Therefore, the manifestations of our core calling are multitude. Therefore, the applications of our gloriously common core calling are infinitely creative. But the core of the calling itself, gloriously common. Jesus says to each and every one of us, follow me. Now that word follow, oh, it's beautiful. We talk a lot in the church about missional living, and we should. But I wonder if perhaps another way it could be viewed as submissional living, that we say yes through the underestimated strength of submission, choosing moment by moment to not self-lead. Jesus says, follow me. He places those two words together. And as he does so, it means that following Jesus is all about nearness with Jesus. Jesus' follow me is inextricably fused with intimacy with God. And so when we say yes to Jesus' follow me, we're not saying yes to scenery, we're saying yes to company. When we say yes to Jesus' follow me, we're saying yes to something that is more relational than even directional. And when we try to separate those two, when we seek the will of God, or we try to discern the direction of God, separated from our gloriously common core calling of intimacy with God, 
What we're going to find are pursuits that may very well keep us busy for the rest of our days, but they're going to be a precious little threat to the kingdom of darkness. Because our greatest spiritual weapon has always been, will always be, nearness with God. I suggest to you that our core calling is gloriously common. Jesus says to each and every one of us, follow me. I've spent the last several years in the book of Luke. I'm almost at the end of chapter two now. I take little words and little phrases and I just let it dissolve inside of me like a great piece of dark organic chocolate with just a hint of crystallized ginger. I let it dissolve inside me, but part of the reason it's taken me so long just to try to get into chapter three is because I was stuck for weeks on the first three words. Let's consider how Luke begins his entire book with three words. First three words, he says, many have undertaken. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He starts his whole book by saying, heads up, I just thought I'd let everybody know this isn't a unique offering. I thought I'd let you know from the very beginning, I'm not the first to do this. I'm not the only one to do this. I'm making no claims to be the best one who has done this. But I will make my offering. I will make my offering. I will add my voice to the chorus of many other faithful voices already speaking. And I think that Luke's example is meaningful in an age that has somehow shifted. Somehow we have shifted away from the health of acknowledging our uniqueness, identifying it, describing it, being strategic about it, celebrating it, since somehow we have shifted to this place where we bow down to uniqueness as an idol. We live in an age that says, you know what? You really had better be first. But if you can't be first, honey, let me tell you, you must be the best. And if you can't be the first and you can't be the best, then you probably just need to sit down and make space for someone who can until you can discover your own unique niche. We hear this in our heads, don't we? And in such an age, it's easy for us to begin thinking that our entire reason for being has to be rooted in absolute uniqueness we begin to believe that in order for our offerings to be valuable, our offerings have to be utterly unusual. My husband and I spent the first chunk of our marriage serving university students. And people would come to us and ask one question wrapped in different words. They would basically be saying, justify your reason for being here. Why are you needed on this campus? And I didn't know it then but somehow I had shifted away from identifying, acknowledging, being strategic with, celebrating our uniqueness. And I had started to bow to uniqueness as an idol. And I can tell looking back by how I responded. 
looking back, I can see that I had started to define my value comparatively. I had started to define my value horizontally instead of vertically. This is how I responded. Why are you needed here, they would ask. And I would say, well, we're needed here because we're the only group that. We're the only ones that really teach the kids to fall in love with the word. Well, then we'd find out there were other campus ministries that were also teaching the kids about the word, had to come up with something else. Okay, we're the only group that really teaches the kid the word, and you should see how intentional we are in discipleship. Well, then lo and behold, there'd be other groups that were great, if not greater, at discipling, had to come up with something else. We're needed here because we're the only group that teaches the kids about the word, we're intentional in discipleship, and wow, have you seen what we're doing in missions? It is endless, isn't it? And when we start bowing to uniqueness as an idol, we begin to justify our existence comparatively, combatively, sometimes even defensively, in what boils down to a greater us and a lesser them, what boils down to who they aren't and who we are, which in a word is unique. I mean, they really tried, didn't they? Bless them. They gave it their best shot, but they were just, they were lacking experience, resources. They really, they tried, but it's a good thing we're here. Jealousy, territorialism, entitlement, fear, offense. Perhaps the divisions in the body aren't that much of a mystery after all. Perhaps this idol of uniqueness is at the root of more than we can imagine. Oh, family, it is a good thing that we're here. It's a great thing that we're here. It's a great thing that we're here because our core calling is gloriously common. And there is a strength that shakes the gates of hell when God's people say yes to following Jesus together. And against this idol of uniqueness is the ancient voice of Luke, the ancient example of Luke, who from the very beginning says, I'm not the first, I'm not the only, making no claims to be the best. I wonder if Luke had been the campus minister instead of me, and somebody had come to him and said, why are you here? Why are you needed? Luke would have said something like, I'm needed because my core calling is gloriously common. And it seemed good to me and good to the Holy Spirit to add my voice to the faithful voices already speaking. We have to realize, friends, that this idol of uniqueness has an agenda. The idol of uniqueness, it shames some of us into silence because we know we're not the first. And we're under no illusions that we would somehow be the best. So we've just decided to sit down and let somebody else make a unique offering. But your voice, your gift, your offering is desperately needed in the world. He divinely designed you 
and within you is such strength and such beauty, and your offering may just be the tipping point for someone else to begin to see Jesus. For some of us, this idol of uniqueness, it shames us into silence, and for others of us, it incites us into arrogance because we're pretty sure we are the first. And we wouldn't say it out loud, that'd be rude, but we, we know we're the best. In whichever direction the idol of uniqueness takes us, the enemy's equally happy. Because in either direction, the one thing the idol of uniqueness will always do is create a whole lot of heart clutter that hinders our view of Jesus and consequently hinders others' view of Jesus through us. Heart clutter, which returns us to John the Baptist's disciples and returns us to John the Baptist's words. Whatever his disciples' motivations were, John's response is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Consider it with me. In verse 27, John first says, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. In other words, anything we have has been given to us. Why then are you jealous of what others have received? In verse 28, he continues, you yourself can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. In other words, guys, from the very beginning, I told you I'm not the main event. There's no ground to claim to be first or best. I'm not here to stake out my own territory for my own tribe. All the earth is the Lord's. All the territory is already his. John continues in verse 29. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. In other words, the kingdom of God, it's about stewardship, not ownership. Entitlement has no place in such a kingdom. Yes, God sends us people, but he sends us people to serve in his name. Also in verse 29, John says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. In other words, Jesus' success doesn't bring me fear. Jesus' success is my joy. The only thing I fear is not following him. Open your eyes. Be freed by a picture bigger than yourselves. After all, there is a wedding taking place around here. Which now brings us to our key verse. In context now. John 3, verse 30. John says, he must increase. He must become greater. I must decrease. I must become less. In other words, guys, my decrease, it's a sign of fruitfulness, not failure. Why then are you offended on my behalf? My life's purpose is to draw attention to Jesus. This decrease, it's holy. Friends, what makes decrease holy is the same thing that can make increase holy. It's when it's done for the love of God. What makes increase or decrease holy is when its inspiration and its destination is the love of God. 
God is inviting us into sacred decrease, into a thinning of our heart clutter in order to thicken our communion with him. And I'd like you to think about these possible motivations and for the next few seconds to let those possibilities stand in your heart. We're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to reveal to us any heart clutter that's blocking our view of Jesus, any heart clutter that's hindering our hospitality, any heart clutter that's limiting our freedom to welcome others into our home, any heart clutter that will affect the next generation. And as you're resting, allow me to read to you a few paragraphs from a book I wrote last year. And then Pastor Reuben is going to come and close us in prayer. In many ways, John lived a Lenten lifestyle 365 days a year. His diet was narrow, his possessions were minimal, and his focus was eternal. But decrease for John was less about assets and more about attention. His longing was to draw his generation's attention and allegiance to the Messiah. From John's perspective, the true value of people seeing him was that people would then be positioned to see through him and gaze at Jesus. By willingly decreasing, John increased others' view of the Savior. Attention is not innately evil. It becomes evil when used as a self-serving end instead of a God-serving means. Those who steward attention as means and not ends stand tall and serve strong, knowing that all gifts come from God and can therefore draw attention to God. Praise slides off such souls like water off a window into a cup that's offered to God alone. John decreased so others could see the Lamb. John decreased so others could follow the one who preceded and surpassed him. John decreased so that the Messiah would be revealed in his lifetime. May our decrease likewise increase our generation's view of Jesus. Pastor. At C3, we love stories. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, email us at stories at myc3church.net. You can also download the C3 Church app to keep up to date on events, listen to our latest album, and give as part of our tithes and offerings. We hope you have been blessed by this message. Use the handle at C3 Oxford Falls to follow us on social media.